Peter Cade Report is a Final Plank Media production. And you can find more of our stuff over at FinalPlank.com. Your voice matters on the internet. Hi, I'm Stan Pierre-Louis, President and CEO of the Entertainment Software Association. As you may know, the ESA serves as the voice and advocate for the video game industry. Our goal at ESA is to ensure that our industry's accomplishments, whether measured by our innovative game development, our audience engagement, or our impact inspiring new waves of talent to get interested in STEM education, are understood, acknowledged, and championed by policymakers and other stakeholders who care about games. And because we're an organization originally founded to ensure First Amendment protections for video game creators, we continue to press for free expression for the video game community. Like every artistic endeavor, games need to speak to our times. Now, we are certainly living in interesting times. In so many ways, there's a broader reckoning going on throughout society today, 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 today. The value of games became convoluted as gore and violence soon disputed. The values of a country polluted, a purity, a conflicting array. Fear not, the industry self-regulated and gave worthy scores that advocated such worries that can be meditated by yours truly, the E-E-S-S-A. Welcome back. 42 degrees out there this morning, 625 right now. Some video games have been coming under fire for being too violent. The controversy is even prompting some video game makers to institute their own rating system. And Congress is taking testimony on the same thing. One of the most controversial games is this one you're looking at right now. It's called Mortal Kombat. It's a game by Sega. Like many video games, the object is to kill your opponent. Uh, and you maim him on the way there. But in Mortal Kombat, the winner gets to rip out the opponent's spine. The gory scenes have prompted at least one Valley Arcade to delete that scene. And Alison Minenchenko from Outer Limits joins us live this morning. I hope I can call you Allison because I don't think I can say your name right That's twice. That's fine, Marlene. <laughs> Allison at this hour is just fine. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Can you describe the scene in Mortal Kombat that, frankly, we just saw, but tell us about it and why um, it's so controversial. Okay, Mortal Kombat is one of the most popular games on the market right now, but at Outer Limits Family Fun Park, we have de deactivated the kill switch on the game. What that does is it removes the fatalities and what is called a death move at the end of the game. It was oddly warm for Washington, D.C. on December 7th, 1993. Sitting at a modest 51 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's 10.5 Celsius for my international listeners, it didn't look like it was going to be a white Christmas for the U.S. Capitol this year. That was well and fine for the congressmen, however, as they climbed the steps for the big hearing today. Walking beside them were several video game and anti-video game lobbyists, and notably both Howard Lincoln, the vice president of Nintendo of America, and Bill White, the vice president of Sega, two people representing the biggest competitive video game companies at the time, and you know there was mud to be slung if and when they had a chance to say something. Leading the rear guard was Senator Joe Lieberman, the person spearheading this whole hearing, alongside Senator Herbert Cole and Senator Byron Dorgan. It was quite the spectacle at the time. You see, a lot has happened in the past year that has scared the pants 
right out of worried parents and devout pastors. Three games in particular, Konami's Lethal Enforcers, Digital Pictures Night Trap, and most notably Midway's Mortal Kombat, had all come out on several Nintendo and Sega's consoles. They were comically, and often gruesomely, violent and sexual in ways that shocked people when they finally reached the home front of consoles. Now that little Timmy can rip the spine out of their next door neighbor via his television, people were flabbergasted that any person, especially young children, could get their hands on titles with little to no problems beyond the price tag. This also happened to be around the time that a moral panic began spreading as gun-related crimes shot through the roof that year. That is to say, in the year 1993, the Bureau of Justice Statistics pumped out a, well, statistic that gun-related homicides had hit the highest it's been since the 70s here in the U.S. This speared the Justice Department and Congress, cousins of the department that manufactured this set of numbers, to go into aggressive action. How does one stop all these gun murders in the early 90s, you might ask? Gun control? Crackdown on the drug trafficking? Maybe introduce a better cost of living? By 1993, the U.S. was in an economic boom thanks to computers, low interest rates, and even low energy costs in a strong housing market. Surely something here could be looked at. And if you look at some of these ads, it's hard to argue with a straight face that the games were made for adults in the first place. Like the one Arthur mentioned. Advertisements have a particular role here. They have the power to egg children on and lure them in. Every parent knows what response a commercial for sugar cereal or the latest Star Wars toy will get from their children. People advertise because it works. They want that product in one way or the other. They're determined to get it. So we ought to think twice about the impact of ads for so-called first-person shooter video games, like the recent ad for a game that invites players to, and I quote, <clears throat> get in touch with your gun-toting, cold-blooded, murdering side. Wait, you mean President Clinton was pointing at the TV and saying that the movies and games were making people shoot each other? Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, I am serious. And apparently Senator Lieberman was serious too. So here we have Nintendo and Sega, who are technically the host of these violent brainwashing games de facto to their consoles, and they were now on a trial of sorts to prove that everything is Gucci. The two companies, pointing fingers at each other like school children trying to blame each other for the goldfish dying, had representatives of the gaming industry try announcing mere hours before the hearing that the entire gaming industry, yeah right, was ready to embrace a self-policing system on content ratings for the system. They knew that the moment that this hit the mainstream news, their butts were going to be scorched by the many remarks of the consumers they've been trying to placate. When the hearing finally started, Experts ready to tear the gaming industry a new one began howling about how video games were encouraging acts of violence to children. Not to mention the outright acts of sexism and racism prevalent in the games. Senator Lieberman, nodding encouragingly at the damaging info to old Nintendo and Sega, let the two of them go at it like cats and dogs on the hearing floor. They expectedly began touting how each of them had their own lackluster rating system, while the other was clearly okay with desecrating children's lives. Nintendo is just as concerned about the issue of violence, whether in movies, television, or video games, as anyone in this room. 
Of course, every entertainment executive tells Congress that, but Nintendo can back it up. In the mid-1980s, when Nintendo entered the video game business in this country, the issue of violence in video games was not in the public's eye. But just like today, there was a computer software industry selling video games, and some of these games contained excessive violence and pornographic material. We didn't want Nintendo's name associated with this kind of product. Even then, we were concerned about game content. I'm pleased to present Sega's views on how we can best ensure that all consumers, especially parents, have the information they need to make appropriate choices among interactive video products for their family. In recent days, the glare of the media spotlight on this issue has resulted in the circulation of a number of distorted and inaccurate claims. The most damaging of these distortions, in my view, is the notion that Sega and the rest of the digital interactive industry are only in the business of selling games to children. This is not the case. Yes, many of Sega's interactive video titles are intended and purchased for young children. Many other Sega titles, however, are intended for and purchased by adults for their personal entertainment and education. The average Sega CD user is almost 22 years old, and only 5% are under the age of 13. The average Sega Genesis user is almost 19 years old, and fewer than 30% are under age 13. And Lieberman began sniping them with criticism about their loyalty to their company, but not so much the market they peddle to. Senator Cole, who listened and had his own few snippets to give, warned the publishers with words that sank like a hot knife through butter. I quote, If you don't do something about content ratings, we, we will. 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 Heavy words indeed, seeing how Lieberman was working on a government-controlled rating system that would staunch any would-be developer that would try the shoot for the moon with mature thematics. This piece of legislator, known as the Video Games Rating Act of 1994, was showcased after the first hearing as a means to introduce a panel of five experts handpicked from the U.S. president himself. That's right, Bill Clinton at the time would have had to find the best, and I say that in quotes, video game experts to look at future video games like Grand Theft Auto dead in the eye and say what kind of rating it should have. If it had happened, it would have been called the Interactive Entertainment Rating Commission. Talk about a mouthful. Ugh. Coming from stage left, the Interactive Entertainment Industry Rating Commission. Yes, you heard that right. A second, nearly identical named group of people from the gaming and retail industry formed in response for the second hearing in March of 1994. It was like watching film actors and their stunt doubles face off, with Jack Heislin, Senior Vice President of Electronic Arts, playing as their team captain, with Babbage's, Walmart, the American Amusement Machine Association, and the Amusements and Music Operator Association, <laughs> just give me a second, that was a lot of names none of us is going to remember, when they all stepped forward towards Lieberman's proposed bill on the hearing floor, they announced that they will have an agreed ratings board by June of that year, and will be ready to have all the games coming out for holiday that year be both appropriately rated and ready for retail stores to display. Senator Lieberman lifted his finger off the trigger for the president's gamer squad idea, but warned them that it better happen, and it better be good. Senator Cole, who loves his newspaper quotes apparently, remarked the following. 
Let me give you my honest perspective on the issue. Violent video games that degrade women are harmful to our children and our garbage. But we live by and cherish a constitution that prevents government from censoring material. So we will try to live with a rating system. Senator Lieberman, whose name I have so much trouble saying all the time, had his own news clipping by adding, If the video game industry had practiced self-restraint before now, we wouldn't be here today. At least they weren't trying to throw the book at them in full condemnation. Maybe they both enjoyed their own Mortal Kombat fatalities in their own special way. Who knows? By April that year, the Interactive Entertainment Industry Rating Commission had reformed and collected every big-name video game company they could as advocates, becoming known as the Interactive Digital Software Association. Which, for my own sake, please let me do this, I will call ITSA for short. ITSA immediately got to work with CEO Greg Fischbach to making the sacred rating system it needed to stave off the lawmakers from intervening. Using the motion picture's rating system as inspiration, the Entertainment Software Ratings Board, or ESB, came to life as the definitive guide to rating all games and the contents it held. It was shown to Senator Lieberman in July 1994 with full approval, and went to effect on September 13th of that same year. Talk about getting everybody together in a desperate moment to fight government control. Good job, gang. It's a really is a ideal marvel to look at what could have easily been one of the most competitive markets at the time. And the ESRB is proof of that. But why have I been talking about ISDA when the Entertainment Software Association is the name of this episode? Well, if you haven't figured it out, ISDA was renamed to ESA in 2003 and is one of the largest video game industry lobbyists ever since people panicked about game violence to a congressional level. If video games ever get dragged into Congress talks, you can bet the ESA will be ready to go in there swinging. They were also the creators of the Electronic Entertainment Expo, or E3 as it's known by its fellow gamers. To the video game world, they came in at the 11th hour as charades heroes, and throughout the 90s and 2000s were highly regarded as the shepherds protecting gaming rights. In this episode, though, we'll be highlighting their triumphs and their misdeeds. Like many blossoming companies in the gaming industry, we may see some seedy things happen in the works, and embarrassing acts yanked behind the currents. Where promising prodigies can evolve into toxic activities, we see that no good deed goes unpunished. You won't need a media press badge to get into this one, because this is episode of The Arcade Report, starring the Entertainment Software Association. Quote, the Entertainment Software Association, parentheses, ESA, in parentheses, is where the major players of the video game industry work together to support the bright future of video games. End quote. That's a nonprofit's company tagline, and if they're ever the ones in the spotlight, you'll be hearing a lot of these lines being churned out. This is important to remember as we continue on, my dear listeners, because it's gonna get dicey when we get these words thrown out during certain times of their existence. I also would like to make an egregious decision and just to call them the ESA from here on out. 
as they are exclusively the same company as their former name, ITSA. I'll point out when the name change becomes official, however, so it's less discrepancy and more me just simplifying the topic for you. Appreciate it. With the founder and first president of ESA at the helm, Doug Lowenstein, ESA was ready to kick off the launchpad of the ESRB rating system and began doing the hard work of bringing the video game industry the respect it had accrued while being scoffed at by other forms of entertainment. Formerly a reporter for local news agencies and with a two-year gig at the legislative director for a senator, Doug thought he had a good grasp on what publishers needed. Looking through his records, and despite seeing a bad correlation between rookie CEOs and new companies of a new industry, I am inclined to say that I think Doug managed to turn on the right foot, and professionally so. Many people will have heard about the Consumer Electronics Show, with honorable mention to its cousin, the European Computer Trade Show. If your company's new product came with a plug or showed on a screen, the CES in particular was the place to showcase to the world what you have in tow. New televisions, phones, computers, and eventually video games were the big things being shown off at the yearly event. Unfortunately, the Consumer Electronic Association that ran CES did not think as highly of the video game portion of their show as their gaming counterparts did. Perhaps putting them in the same boat as toys to be shown for the kids' stores during the early 90s wasn't the greatest idea and they were often shunted to the far corners to be largely ignored by those who wanted to see those fancy new TVs they could get for football later that year. Tom Kalinske, the CEO of Sega of America, is one of the prime storytellers of this miserable experience, saying, and I quote, The CES organizers used to put the video game industry way, way in the back. In 1991, they put us in a tent, and you had to walk past all the porn vendors to find us. That particular year, it was pouring rain, and the rain leaked right over our new Genesis system. I was just furious with the way CES treated the video game industry, and I felt we were a more important industry than they were giving us credit for. With the Expo's poor planning and rather dismissive attitude towards the publishers, Sega pieced out of CES later that year, and many more had followed suit. By 1994, many video game companies had deserted the vitriolic trade show and had nowhere to showcase their work with dignity. Our ESA's Doug Lowenstein had saw this and knew where the strike first, but it took a lot of teamwork for this resolution to take form. The heavy contender to get the pendulum in motion was one Pat Farrell, creator of the GamePro magazine that 80s and 90s kids will recognize here in the U.S., we might know Game Informer as the surviving competitor in the zine scene, but Pat was at the top of his game in 1994, being one of the most valuable sources in getting games and names of the video game world to people via colorful pages and astounding stories in his publication. As he and many others saw how CES was leaving out companies to dry, some pun intended with Sega's story, Pat shortly realized that there was an opportunity to be had. A convention. Much like CES but showcasing nothing but the gaming world. Ooh. He knew big names like Activision and Sega would chomp at the bit for a chance for their sweet comeuppance, but he was going to need to get the idea, and all its potential planning, rung up the ladder through the company that owns his own, the International Data Group, or IDG. Yep, acronyms I can't pronounce for days, people. Now, IDG, and they're already well-experienced with running a grand get-together, such as Apple's Macworld convention. 
With their pedigree and a little prompting, lights turned green as Pat Farrell rounded up the chain, and all it needed now was the big pitch to the gaming publishers. In the meantime, companies and other people were trying to keep it traditional and tried persuading CEA's Consumer Electronics Show to maybe give them better seats on the show. You know, maybe if you ask them, instead of having to make your own thing, they'll think about it. Maybe. Nope. <laughs> Just kidding. The CES wasn't having any of it and told their video game counterparts to suck eggs and accept what they give. At least until they heard companies were passing them up to try out this big idea in the works. A new expo. Like a jeering wrestler slowly turning the face of their competitor, they realized they may have to change their tactics. Meanwhile, on a summer Thursday afternoon of 1994, Pat was enjoying himself at a fancy restaurant. He had all the plans and folders almost ready for his grand idea, called the Electronic Entertainment Expo, or E3 for short, when his assistant ran up and told him that the meeting for tomorrow was supposed to be today. Oh, snap! He flew to the EA building, where the ESA was waiting with most of its members, and he frantically apologized and began to sell the concept of E3 to the group. His papers may have been disheveled and his speech partially improvised, but the spirit of his goal rang clear to break off from CES once and for all, and to make their own big event. With ESA's Doug Lowenstein at the center of the meeting's fold, he was prepared to mediate nervous faces and encourage fence-sitters, and boy did he have work to do. Sega's Tom Kalinske was all hands in agreement, pointing out that CES has never given two hits about the gaming industry, and he was excited to have someone who would be thrilled trying to seek them out. Nintendo's Howard Lincoln, one of the people who tried to persuade CES to no avail, was still wanting to cling to CES like a hurt lover, knowing that taking a chance and scorning a guaranteed audience would be too risky for their company at home. Sony, with their new PlayStation on the playing field, and others like Acclaim and EA were interested, but skeptical. The group eventually came to the agreement that E3 was a very possible dream, and with some money-changing hands to ESA, could work in conjunction with IDG's Pat Farrell to make it happen that year. Things got complicated, though, when CES, slotted around the same time, decided to get petty and play dirty by offering a true blue dedicated spot for gaming companies, which led to Nintendo and Microsoft to go take the bait. When it looked like E3 was going to happen regardless, however, the CEO in charge of CES, Gary Shapiro, rang up Pat Farrell and admitted his half-hearted attempt to stop E3 has failed and he canceled the whole video game portion of CES wholesale. Nintendo and Microsoft came back with their hat in their hands, and they were subsequently given a decent but out-of-the-way section of the expo for some humility. Just for that year. E3 was finally born into fruition, and with Pat's support, the ESA was ready to show the world how serious they really were. Well, the IDSA is a trade association which represents the public affairs and business interests of the interactive entertainment industry. One of the most important things we do is put on the E3 show, the Electronic Entertainment Expo. E3 is the largest content show ever mounted anywhere in the world. This year, for example, in Atlanta, we have close to 500 exhibitors. We have over 535,000 net square feet of exhibit space that we've sold. That represents 35 football fields of exhibit space for people to uh, traverse over a three-day period. Um, the show will have over 1,500 titles being showcased uh, this year uh, and is clearly and undisputably the most important worldwide event for the interactive entertainment community. In fact, for three days, 
it is the center of the universe for those who develop, publish, and sell interactive entertainment products. The Los Angeles Convention Center was packed for their first E3 from May 11th to the 13th of 1995, sitting at a fair hmm, 63 degrees Fahrenheit or 17 degrees Celsius with partly cloudy skies. Techno-funk music came blazing and the screens and displays of dozens of games were flashing away. Local model agencies and allegedly even street-side escorts were loaded with tons of contracts and they arrived to dress up as video game characters and other visually appealing hosts, referred to controversially as booth babes, to those with the male gaze in full force. Even celebrities made appearances to see what games were ready to be shown. Michael Jackson was attending the Sony party, while Steven Spielberg and even Sylvester Stallone showed up to join with the queue of gamers. Games that just came out or were about to be released were on full display, including Chrono Trigger, Descent, Donkey Kong Land, Earthbound, Killer Instinct, Panzer Dragoon, Rayman, Resident Evil, Ridge Racer, Vectorman, Virtual Fighter, and Wing Commander 3. Whew. The Sega Saturn, slotted for release on September 2nd, 1995, was competing for the limelight against the Sony PlayStation that was to arrive a week later. When Sega took the stage with Tom Kalinske, nevertheless, he decided to start the E3 tradition of dropping a bombshell to make the attendees and news agencies go wild. The Saturn was actually out that day. <laughs> People were stunned. It just didn't make sense. Could, could Sega do that? Would they do that? Well, indeed they did, wanting to stunt some of that spotlight Sony seemed to have been hogging and taking for its own. It looks like Sega has found a new rival to contend with for the next few years. As E3 wrapped up with around 40,000 attendees over the course of three days, the ESA and Pat Farrell were chuffed with pride at their accomplishment. Not only was it super successful in getting the attention they wanted for their companies, it was incredibly profitable as well. If they wanted to lobby the government to their heart's content without scaring away companies with their membership dues, this was the way to go. Within the year, Doug Lowenstein struck a deal with Pat Farrell's parent company, IDG, to buy out the full rights to E3, and then contract them to continue handling the event. Smart. It was a win-win situation from both sides, and now with E3 coming out every summer amidst the great years of the console wars, ESA would be loaded with cash to take on legal cases that would have been otherwise desperate situations for publishers to handle, allowing them to focus on what they do best, make quality video games. As they will often proclaim, they were now the official voice and advocate for the video game industry, ready to protect it at all costs. take a little break here because honestly the ESA has done a boatload of work in the first couple of years of its existence. Creating the ESRB rating and making E3 happen in the 90s is a real accomplishment and an amazing one at that. Doug Lowenstein, as far as I can tell from everything I've read, was a straightforward and fair leader and did an amazing job leading ESA until his departure from the company in 2007. Unless you count an infamous speech he posed in the last days of a CEO. As far as I can tell, the internet has been almost completely scrubbed of any audio due to either time or legal opportunity. 
I got the big old script though, and it's, it's a bit of a doozy. From what I read of it, it appears he gives what counts as a rather vulgar speech at the time. Not really nowadays. But it starts with taking pot shots at Rockstar after one of their games is revealed to have a sex minigame, known as Hot Coffee. When this hidden piece of content was discovered after some modding revealed it to be a separate but otherwise functional scene, an uproar amongst the puritanical public began and pitchforks of the legal kind wanted Rockstar's head. Despite the fact that the company had actually left ESA, a sponsored role in the association, Doug decided to make an unheard of move and rounded his speech of the situation in defense of Grand Theft Auto's situation, citing, and I quote, Rockstar has a long and proven track record of bringing innovative and groundbreaking entertainment to millions of consumers around the world. The current controversy surrounding Grand Theft Auto, San Andreas, is the latest example of critics attempting to blame the entertainment industry for the societal ills that are not actually the result of a complex array of factors. While milk toast to some of the hot takes we've seen throughout the years, this was a huge deal for video game companies that operated in the United States. What Doug was laying down was the bricks of lawful pavement that would be the mantra of protecting video game rights, primarily through the First Amendment right of free speech. From here, legal cases began building around the country, and the ESA was ready to play hardball. Heading up the uphill battle against censorship that was being sought against games, particularly ones rated M for Mature, one of the first court cases ESA handled was ESA versus, and forgive me for slaughtering this name, Blagojevic, who was the governor of Illinois in 2005. The governor, like many others in the period, was easily spooked by innocent young minds being tattered their ribbons by violent and sexual imagery shown in titles, such as the hot coffee mod being made the prime example. In response to pressure from his constituents, he signed a bill into law that banned all sale of games that portrayed these mature themes to minors. Now, hypothetically, I can see his perspective in retrospect. Who can't? We didn't want to allow kids to walk into movie theaters back then to see the movie Hostel, which is a horror movie with glorified torture porn that came out the same year. Grabbing the latest issue of Hustler from the store shelves was also a no-go for salacious teen boys. So what distinguishes a game that would celebrate gunning down innocent locals and committing adult acts in their car with the local nightlife to be any different? Well, as the court case made its way to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in 2008, it was made vividly clear by ESA that because they accurately portray their content with a voluntary system, the ESRB, it was already heavily modulated both in scope and design. Parents could instantly see what the game was designed for simply from a letter on the box. Restricting an already restricted medium of art was a liable violation of the First Amendment of rights of both video game publishers and retailers alike who worked on a federal level to appease Lieberman several years prior. What reason would a state have to challenge a constitutional right given to their work, especially one that has been worked over for years? As it turns out, the courts agreed with ESA's assessment of the ESRB. It was an acceptable measure of protecting children from content their parents could disprove of. Striking down the Illinois laws unconstitutional, this case turned into the gold standard ESA would wield like a baton, for every challenge that came out their way, and they would. Touching on some of the legal cases they handled at this time period, 
The 2006 ESA versus Fody case was another prime example where Louisiana Attorney General Charles Fody was trying to impose restrictions on retailers that sold violent games to minors, this time with heavy fines instead of an outright ban. Using that little golden rod of free speech, the ESA battered the case up the legal chain, and this time all the way to the Supreme Court. Like before, the court also agreed that such violations of free speech were unconstitutional, and was rapidly torn down. You can see what the theme of the next dozen cases will be like and handled, almost exclusively in ESA's favor. Banning games in the United States was going to be a dangerous encounter for those who thought it was going to be an easy fight. The ESA has found their boxing gloves. Around this time, the ESA thought it would be smart to begin working at the source of the issue with misconceptions by introducing the video game's voter network, which is a grassroots advocacy group focused on hyping up gamers and gaming enthusiasts alike into taking a more active approach in defending the legacy that gaming has to offer. This is bloody genius. Why send a dozen lawyers to key cases to beat down rogue laws when you could have thousands of vocal gamers educated on the law and how to effectively communicate the benefits of video games to society? Latching onto colleges and local communities, the Video Game Voters Network, or VGVN, would equip locals with the ability to define gaming as a legitimate form of entertainment and with video games itself a protected form of art. As 2007 entered the fold, the ESA saw some big changes, with our first president, Lewinstein, stepping down from a decade-long venture, being succeeded by Michael D. Gallagher. Once an assistant secretary to the U.S. Department of Commerce, he was previously the go-to guy when it came to lobbying for the telecommunications industry, including making a hard push for the uniquely named Telecommunications Act of 1996. Ah, <laughs> uh, man, they're, they're really creative. With this in play, stringent and defunct regulations that was bottlenecking aspects of the phone and TV industry were being remodeled, which Gallagher firmly believed would allow companies to strike true with further advances in innovation and allow a stronger front of competition. He was right, of course, as we see the boom of the internet around this time, and technology was flourishing for the American market vastly eclipsing his previous decade in the 80s. It felt like a perfect fit to have somebody like Gallagher at the helm, a staunch opponent on any regulation that could threaten the profit margins of the video game industry. Mike Gallagher, Chief Executive Officer of the Entertainment Software Association, the trade association that represents the video game industry. And in 2008, Governor Perry came to E3, the world's largest trade show for video games, and said, you all should come to Texas. Texas is an economy that's built on creativity. It's a great environment for what your industry stands for, and you will thrive here. And starting in that conversation in 2008 with the, president, uh, with, uh, the governor's leadership, we've added over 5,000 jobs in that amount of time. That's at an average wage of $87,000 a year. 185 companies have moved to Texas to be a part of the environment that the governor has uh, helped to achieve. And what you have in the state of Texas is a remarkable combination of the artistic uh, creativity of its people. You have a university system that's second to none. And then you have a tax structure that says, if you move your jobs here and you commit to the state of Texas, the state of Texas is going to commit to you. And it's a model that works. It was at this time that the ESA has made an announcement that E3 was to be moved from Los Angeles to Santa Monica, California. 
With the recent console wars of the PS3 and Xbox 360 heavily underway at this point, and the Wii was sweeping droves of attention to the doors, the current convention size was just too small, cramped, and full of sweaty gamers that led to the smell of funk. Too often exhibitors and attendees alike would get the E3 cold from being so damn close to each other. Regardless, E3 was in its prime. They even just laid down a new code of conduct for the models, and sometimes prostitutes that would be hired as booth babes. A gross and perverted stigma that grew on E3 for nearly a decade, these booth babes would dress provocatively and luring and craven and desolate men to the showcase they were covering. Chatting the guys up and trying to get a connection, they'd know basic functions and features of the game or product, but they'd whistle for a supervisor to take over once the poor sap was hooked. By 2006, even the ESA realized how incredibly sexist and disgusting this was, and basically told these companies to stick to safer work levels of cosplay or get out of the kitchen. By 2017, even the nuns' version of Booth Babes were taken out of commission. There are some serious snags to be had at this time, though. E3 was being restructured as the sudden increase of foot traffic caused a dilution of people. Companies present weren't impressed with the inability to reach their target audience, as a line to one game could be plagued by hundreds of possibly disinterested people who may not even care what the game is about. When a booth can run 5 to 10 million dollars, they needed to know that what they were showing was being seen by the right people. ESA's response of moving to Santa Monica, while good intention, was destructive for them both financially and socially. You see, I mentioned that the last E3 was cramped and full of greasy lads, and with the heat, it could be a nightmare. The new place was even that much better. They just invited less people. 2007 and 2008 C3 was almost exclusively for those who work for media and retail, capping at what was once over 60,000 people to just a little bit under 10,000 people. It didn't help that they pushed E3 even further into the summer, which meant retailers weren't as keen to look closely at things being so close for the holiday planning. So now we have a mini-me E3, no gamers to generate word-of-mouth buzz, minimal visibility from the few media attendees there, and retailers who are barely given the convention the side-eye. It was then that one of the biggest gaming companies at the time, Activision, decided that it was a big fish in a little pool, and stepped away from both its position in the ESA and E3 entirely. Codemasters, the British subsidiary of EA, also stepped away. But EA itself didn't, question mark? Weird flex, but okay. NCSoft also took an exit here as well, the people behind Guild Wars. The ESA realized that going to the extreme end of the spectrum was an unnecessarily bold move that didn't pay off, and 2009 was going to have to be that year that EA finds compromise or risks being shut down for good. By the time we reach 2010, business is booming for the video game industry. All three major game systems, now with some years behind their belt, was chugging out bangers like Mass Effect 2, God of War 3, Halo Reach, and Red Dead Redemption. Ironically, the top five best-selling games that year were <laughs> Wii Sports, New Super Mario Bros. Wii, Wii Sports Resort, Wii Fit Plus, and FIFA 11. Gotta leave it to Nintendo to have those long legs. ESA, with Gallagher pulling the reins, was still engaging law policies and sponsoring research to help promote how video games were benefiting health, education, and job creations. By 2011, this was solidified in the form of the Video Games for Health Initiative, 
which went on to partner with organizations like the American Heart Association and National Institutes of Health, both of which were exuberant in promoting gaming behavior that would have long-term benefits. Granted, it's still clear that the ESA is focused on protecting the businesses that formed the organizations, and a lot of this was financially managed and promoted to help combat stereotypes. It's possible that the ESA had some degree of bias in promoting the Video Games for Health initiative, as the organization represents the video game industry and has a vested interest in portraying video games in a positive light. However, it's important to note that as the initiative was supported by scientific research and partnerships with reputable organizations such as the American Heart Association and the National Institutes of Health, which suggests that the ESA was also seeking to promote the use of video games in a responsible and evidence-based way. Additionally, it's worth noting that the concept of using video games for health purposes is not a new or controversial idea. There is a growing body of research indicating that certain types of video games can have positive effects on cognitive function, physical health, and mental health. By promoting the Video Games for Health initiative, the ESA was likely seeking to raise awareness of these benefits and encourage the development of games that can have a positive impact on players' health and well-being. Backing up a tad bit to help refocus on E3, the ESA had a year to find the sweet spot between having a small city's worth of people show up and only having the press and store reps appear. While I was toting a great year for games in 2010 earlier, 2009 was a different story with the global economic downturn and the housing market crashing to the ground in the states. Swine flu was also amidst an outbreak in the entire country, especially in parts of California where E3 was expected to happen. It was looking rough. In the end, 2009's E3 still hosted 45,000 people, at the risk of sickness spreading. The kicker was, it was completely shut off to the public, meaning if you wanted in, you needed to know a guy, be someone buying a spot there, or have a boatload of money to buy your way in. The desire to get into the big version of E3, however, was enough that the attendance did flourish to the 45k cap at the event, despite losing Activision and Vivendi's exhibits in the mix. The style of E3 would go on for seven consecutive years before once again being open to the public. It appears to have performed financially well for itself, but from a bird's eye view, this appears to be when the strategy and legacy of E3 being the spotlight of gaming news began the plateau. With the surge of cash coming in from the following years of E3, the ESA took several steps in both the venue's direction and of legal standpoints. E3 in 2010 saw a much larger and open floor with expanded show exhibits and a heavier focus on core gamers. I guess people are miffed about the best-selling Wii Sports Frenzy scuffing up the theme as too casual, so they wanted to get into the gritty with high-profile announcements such as the Wii U, Microsoft Connect, PlayStation Move. Wait a minute. These things sound like casual things. Oh wait, uh, there, there, there was also Gears of War 3, Call of Duty, Black Ops, Halo Reach, Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, and Portal. You know, core games. You can say it was a mix of both without too much scrutiny, right? One of the biggest changes for the world was this was the first E3 to allow virtual and online streaming to happen at the venue, meaning people could watch big announcements right from their couch. This was huge, as something like this guaranteed a much broader reach and incredible engagement for announcements to both the states and the world. No longer did we have to catch whiffs of it in a magazine articles or website clickbait searches, 
we'd get to virtually see everything for ourselves, trailer and all. Looking at everything in perspective, it was a banger show that year and probably one of the best E3s that came out in this report. And then 2011 happened for the ESA, and oh boy, <laughs> did the crap get blasted right into an industrial-grade fan. In San Francisco, just miles from the heart of Silicon Valley, members of the tech community gathered to rally against two national bills, the Stop Online Piracy Act, or SOPA, and PIPA, the Protect Intellectual Property Act. Information needs to be free. We don't want this bill fixed. We want it stopped. We don't want censorship, and this leads to a form of censorship. Just to be clear, we're not fans of piracy at all, but we are fans of just the freedom of information. Across the country in New York, the scene was similar as protesters gathered outside the offices of Senator Schumer and Gillibrand, two co-sponsors of PIPA. Who loves the internet? Online, thousands of internet companies were waging their own battles. Wikipedia suspended service, Google provided a direct link for people to take action, and blogging to a WordPress press made the censorship message clear. There are tons of folks out there who probably weren't really aware of SOPA and PIPA before today. They're finding out how scary these bills really are. The message has also struck several lawmakers. And now, as of Wednesday afternoon, two Republican senators said they would rescind their support. I don't think the bills in their current form have any hope of passing at this point. Even President Obama has said he wouldn't sign either into law. CBS Corporation, the parent company of CNET and CBS News, supports the legislation. For the concerned consumer, there's already a boycott SOPA app for Android phones. This free download scans barcodes and then will tell you if the product manufacturer is one who supports the bill. On October 26, 2011, Texas Representative Lamar Smith slapped a proposal to the House of Representatives known infamously as the Stop Online Piracy Act, or SOPA. You may have heard mention of this, or you may have been knee-deep in this piece of legislation. From the outset, SOPA was designed to let U.S. law enforcement, such as the courts, have the power to make egregious demands in the face of copyright infringement and illegal online trafficking of goods. This included provisions that could force advertising networks and sites that handle cash to end business with websites that the U.S. government deemed to be naughty rule-breakers while search engines would have to blacklist said offenders. It also opened the possibility of internet providers to cut access to an offending website wholesale, effectively killing the webpage for good. On top of that, they wanted the pen a maximum penalty of five years in prison if the website, or even you, tried to illegally stream copyright content. Saw a funny movie clip that you shared on Facebook when the movie studio was on a power trip? Do not pass go, do not collect $200. That was the reality of SOPA. To add to this, there was already another proposal that entered the Senate floor a few months later called the Protect IP Act, or PIPA. Much like SOPA, PIPA wanted to give the government and copyright holders the ability to nuke a potentially law-breaking website, notably those committing copyright infringement outside the U.S. If someone even thought a given website was treading close to the rights of their product, Pipa could be the big red phone they could use to either shackle the site until investigation is resolved or shut it down completely. It was bonkers how abusive this could be. Needless to say, the vast majority of the internet, including Google, Wikipedia, Reddit, Craigslist, and literally, I ain't kidding, I can use that word, literally, thousands of websites began shouting both to the heavens and anyone that could read that these bills were a load of garbage in the current format. It was such a threat to them in net neutrality, as it was called, 
that they coordinated a day of blackout on January 18th, 2012 to help spread awareness on just how foobar the internet would be if this was seriously implemented as is. Now you may be wondering, where was ESA in all of this? As one of the leading vanguards of online entertainment, surely they had a strong case ready like they've had before with the golden rod of the First Amendment at hand. And they did have a strong argument at the ready. But it was in support of Sopa and Pipa. And people were furious. Under a microscope, it's initially understandable why ESA thought this was the right move. ESA hates restrictions, but loves the idea of copyrighted material being protected by both their video game companies and the government. Heck, they probably had a list of websites on speed dial that's been giving them an itch for years. Websites that shared emulators, game ROMs, game music, you name it. With SOPA, they could take off their white gloves and bloody some knuckles with parts of the internet that's been stealing and selling games that's been harming businesses for years. Unfortunately, Gallagher's ESA would not be able to maintain that position for very long, as the organization was crucified for their stance, even by their own board members. Companies like EA and Nintendo balked at the position, and pulled out their membership from the group. Mark Kern, the CEO of a gaming company, Red 5 Studios, founded the League for Gamers as a rival to ESA to challenge them on the position, thinking Gallagher was insane to make this the viewpoint of the gaming industry. My name is Craig Skistinus. I run the gaming website ScrewAttack.com. Hi, my name is Graham. I'm with Loading Ready Run, and I'm a web video producer. My name is James Portnow. I write a show called Extra Credits. My name is Daniel Floyd. I'm the editor and narrator for Extra Credits. My name is Mark Kern, and I'm the CEO of Red 5 Studios. Our ability to bring you original gaming content depends on a free and open internet. Our ability to entertain you depends on a free and open internet. My ability to talk about what more we can do with our medium depends on a free and open internet. My ability to create online games like Firefall depends on a free and open internet. SOPA, the Stop Online Piracy Act, threatens to end all that. We need you. We need you. We need you. We need your help to fight it. The ESA. The Entertainment Software Association. The lobbying arm of the video game industry. Has thrown its weight behind supporting SOPA. True or not, it's believed that the ESA represents the game industry. And right now, the ESA is supporting SOPA. Alright, so E3, it's like gaming's biggest event is actually run by the ESA, and in fact, it's their biggest source of revenue. So to attend and cover E3 is to financially support the ESA, which supports SOPA. If they won't withdraw support from SOPA, let's withdraw support from them. All right, so here's what we're gonna do. Please ask your favorite gaming site or content creator. Ask your favorite game reviewer, your favorite game journalism site. Or YouTube channel, developer or publisher, not to attend or cover E3, the ESA's biggest money-making tool, unless they change their stance on the Stop Online Piracy Act. Even more, ask your favorite video game developers or publishers that have pulled their support from SOPA publicly to also pull their monetary support from E3. This is the most effective way that they can show our dissatisfaction with the ESA supporting SOPA. I believe in a free and open internet. I believe in a free and open internet. We believe in a free internet. I believe in a free internet. I believe in a free internet. And I oppose SOPA. And I will not be attending or covering E3 until the ESA changes their stance on SOPA. I will not be attending or covering E3 until the ESA removes their support. I will not be attending or covering E3 until the ESA removes their support. 
I will not be attending or covering this year's E3 unless the ESA pulls their support from SOFA. I will not be attending E3 until the ESA removes their support from this legislation. Within a matter of weeks, the ESA was so battered for their outlier position that they soon reversed it, calling on Congress to reject the current drafts of SOFA and PIPA. Fires were eventually put out and the two drafts were postponed indefinitely, but ESA lost incredible faith in large chunks of the gaming industry in a matter of a couple of months. Revealing a major turning point of their position in the business, it showed that ESA's very own method of educating people on crucial details has come to back to bite them in the butt. No longer were people ignorant and stayed still when push came to shove. When the internet unites to protect itself, it too can mobilize a frenzy of public discourse that can enable mass groups of people to influence politics. ESA is no longer alone. By 2013, at least $6 million has been reported by the ESA in handling serious and frivolous lawsuits. The court case in California, Brown vs. Entertainment Merchants Association, has finally came to a close at this point in favor of the ESA. This is one of the last major cases where a state law was made to restrict sales of violent games to kids. And so far for the next couple of years, the ESA will mostly focus on things behind the scenes. Mostly turn the shoulder check to any would-be sites or groups that misuse assets not legally obtained from the video game company. Cease and desist letters and notice of takedowns were their go-to, and trying to persuade search engines to delist offending sites. If you think that sounds awfully like what SOFO is trying to accomplish, you'd be right. The key difference is that the ESA needed to play fair and ask nicely. It was up to the companies like Google to see reason when it came to it. Over in E3 over the next few years, things start to get a little dicey between the major convention and the star companies that usually show up. With the price of showcasing product being astronomically expensive, video game companies began to realize what Activision figured out long ago. Sure, E3 was the mecca of gaming news and big announcements, but now that the streaming component of the show was the de facto way for an overwhelming majority of consumers to see it, what was stopping them from hosting their own virtual event? Tradition? Legacy? That might work in a more antiquated industry, but in the region of technology, forging new paths and methodology has always been part of the playbook. That year, the same companies that had, albeit temporarily, stepped away from the ESA board, Nintendo and EA, decided that they didn't need to do the whole song and dance. Sure, Nintendo wanted games in the hands of media, so they kept some floor booth space, but large sums of money were left pocketed as they introduced their first rendition of the Nintendo Direct, a pre-recorded video that would livestream to the world about upcoming Nintendo news. It was a huge hit, and the main form of communication we see with Nintendo today. EA eventually forms their own event, called EA Play, which they began hosting near the E3 area starting in 2016. Microsoft and Sony were beginning the transition to a partial appearance at E3, using special press conferences to reveal the Xbox One and PS4 for the first time, respectively. They, like Nintendo, were more than happy to grab some floor space to show off their future game titles, but the magic was no longer completely under ESA's umbrella. Funds began to slip, and smaller studios that would try to claim the free space found it was too ungodly expensive to maintain. 
who in their right minds would afford the multi-million dollar bill to the performance that they did back then? Perhaps for a multitude of reasons, E3 eventually allowed tickets to be sold to public attendees for their 2015 show. Some 5,000 tickets were passed off the vendors to sell for general admission, making the public a mere estimated 10% of those who would make their appearance, costing a whopping $249 US for a three-day pass, notably costly in comparison to other passes for media and industry. It would give you a rare chance to check out the show floor, visit panel discussions with developers and their game staff, and much more. Fun fact, this is the current cost of the entry fee if you wanted to attend E3 as of 2023. If it was still happening. <laughs> they either did not think that this was too expensive, or they really freaking needed the money. Either way, it's a big no for me, dog. And apparently them too. Whoops. On the legal spectrum of our company... 2015 was an interesting year for the ESA as they took the stand for Let's Players in the modding community. That's right, it's your boy, ESA. I'm kinda kidding, but there's a thread of truth as to what happened. It was around this time that the US Copyright Office was making new rounds to updating the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA. I'm sure you've heard or even seen the acronym at one point or another when you're searching for something that, you know, involved movies, music, or gaming, wink wink. It was the foundation and gold standard protection for the copyright of dang near anything digital that could be pirated or otherwise be shared for free. With it being almost 15 years at this point, and with the internet much more diverse in those years, video games were to enter the scrutiny on legal rights on the internet. So here's the rub. You make something, you get it copyrighted, it's all legally protected, and then you send it to the internet, and then you make sweet cash. Huh. Here comes the money! Here we go! Money talks! Here comes the money! If the copyright holder, or someone dubious in their eyes, were to take that product and make a derivative, that is now an entirely new entity with copyrighted material in the copyright office world. A car company might use 90% of the same materials and design under the hood, but if it makes a new line of model, there's no way they can't claim it's the same vehicle, right? Now the kicker is, you would think that the ESA would be hardcore gung-ho about letting the modding community touch an intellectual property, and, well, messing with assets and turning Link into Waluigi on Ocarina of Time. Turns out, and this is to my great surprise, uh, that they actually advocate for them. <laughs> They're like, yeah, cool, go ahead, modify and customize games however you dang please. So long as it doesn't turn into a business model, and the game isn't actively supported by the developers. Now, and I'm, I'm going to go off uh, script for a moment here, because I want to specifically point out that if it's somehow in, like, in the process of being profited, the ESA very specifically does not want you taking any form of it besides the version you paid for. But the moment it's no longer available for purchase, ESA just goes, Yep, go for it. They even went to the copyright office and requested the exemption to be made for this specific purpose. The ESA recognizes that modding can contribute to the creativity, innovation, and longevity of video games. And so this was a big step in the direction that companies like Nintendo and Sony would have traditionally slammed the hammer down. As a person who enjoys the modding community for several titles, this feels like a huge win for me and many others around us. The fact that the ESA actually went out of its way to help platforms like Steam and GOG make tools to help support modding 
That's a gesture I personally treasure. Sure, I have a few hot takes here and there, and I admit I can be scathing and blunt in my opinions here on the report, but it's important to me to recognize such a huge win. You rock, ESA. Granted, its support isn't one-sided. The ESA does go out for blood every now and then, notably when it's vied for the right of gaming developers to issue takedown notices for modding content on online platforms, and that is something I understand entirely. If you want Waluigi to be the next hero of time in your next single-player playthrough, go for it. If you think you should have infinite arrows that shoot at moblins like a machine gun, well, you do you. But if you think you should be giving yourself infinite currency or changing how your character looks or how the gameplay acts when you're online with other people and you're doing it outside the game, you're asking for trouble. Companies, typically at least, bust their butts trying to ensure that online play is a positive and fair experience, and interfering with that means you're affecting more than just your playthrough. As E3 2016 approached the ESA, the big question kept cropping up. What do we do with the public that wants to see the dang video games? Hmm. Several more members have left the board at this point. Mad Cats, Little Orbit, and Slang Counted. I would like to point out that Mad Cats was on the verge of bankruptcy, and the other two were actually partially absorbed or just doing their own thing. Slang in particular focuses on publishing games for Latin audiences, and it looks like they're still keeping strong. So I don't know what's up with that. So how do we beat the Batman? Well, replace Batman with issues regarding convention size, and then replace defeat with figure out how not to get blasted on social media. Their resolution was the free E3 live event. That was nearby the real deal E3, and was meant to give the public a taste of what it had been like if they are actually able to enter the Golden Kingdom itself. 20,000 people flocked to this entertainment complex, only to realize it was basically shoestrings and duct tape, leading to a lot of grumbling. But it was free, right? Surely 20,000 people wouldn't do anything rash like, I don't know, share pictures and tell the internet how E3 is awful, right? Oh, they did. Never mind. Sometimes I forget I immediately answer my own rhetorical questions. Call it a quirk of mine. Kind of like when the ESA goose up E3 each year. For 2017, E3 decided it was time to open the pearly gates to all 15,000 people of the public that couldn't snatch a media pass, meaning that around 68,000 people took to the floor, leading to crowded booths, lines being tangled, and the E3 funk of sweaty gamers becoming even more prevalent. Ugh. Three days of this meant media folks trying to get their hands directly on the game they wanted to cover needed to be done by appointment or at risk with the masses. If only they could allot time for media and retailers to come in unscathed, free of the averagely washed public that came swarming in. And for 2018, that's exactly what they did. Out of the three-day party train that's the Expo, two of those days held the first three hours open to only members of the industry. I've heard stories from media outlets like Giant Bomb and IGN recount tales about the joys of traversing E3, dealing with questionable placement, and needing to do reports and interviews in hallways and bathrooms. I can only hope that giving the media some literal breathing space did some good for them at the time. It was the year of 2018 that E3 saw its biggest attendance, and to some extent the ESA's biggest profits, 
at a whopping 69,200 people. Nice. While it may have been their biggest success yet, the issue with space of the LA Convention Center was still ready to blow up, potentially in a positive or negative way. The city of LA and the AEG, who owned the LA Convention Center, had made vague promises that they would have more space available for E3 next year in 2019. There were no guaranteed promises to that, and as a result, the ESA was a bit more clammy on dates and times, where it usually was announced within the week of the current E3. The attendance may have been booming, but with how jam-packed it was, things felt like a bubble. By 2019, the number of exhibitors had dropped from 293 to 209, almost a third of the entire presentation. Companies like Sony decided that they were going to focus more on their own online presentations as they streamed their titles into smaller but higher quality brackets of release. EA was also gone at this point, another giant pillar of the gaming industry. Nintendo Directs and digital-only keynotes at E3 was also another heavy blow for the ESA at this point. It was reported in 2016 that E3's profits was 48% of the ESA's annual budget and 37% coming directly from representing companies in the form of membership dues. With big names dropping from the festivities, millions of dollars that was once fruit to be plucked from the E3 tree dried up. Suddenly, the ESA didn't announce where and when the next E3 was to be held. At all. For the first time since its start, E3 news has gone generally quiet. With the exception of an embarrassing event. During and after 2019's E3, you would have thought that the media would be buzzing over new games being announced and coming out soon. In a sinister surprise, however, it was being reported that over 2,000 journalists, content creators, and industry professionals had their entire library of personal info being showcased on the E3 website. Anyone with five minutes of their time was able to log in on the site and find the complete database of high-profile figures that included their names, phone numbers, home address, and even birth dates and photos. It was a doxing package dream for toxic individuals of the public whose sick duty was to harass people like these with threats of death, violent sexual acts, ugh, and other mind-numbing details that would send chills down a normal person's spine. All of this because ESA, the self-declared defender of the video game industry, stupidly published their entire block of sensitive information that people have been trying to protect for decades. Years of hard work keeping their family and friends and themselves from being vulnerable to the fouler side of the internet just washed away within days. The ESA offered their victims a year of free identity theft protection and credit monitoring services. Let that response sink in. They thought, they could absolve liability with about $100 worth of online services. People traumatized and streamers, reporters, being told by individuals that they know where their family lives and they're coming to kill and sexually assault them, and they offered that. Oh, and a couple of months later, people discovered another 6,000 people's information just sitting there from previous E3s for years. What the heck do you say? How many florists did you retire after you bought bouquets of flowers for these people? So you have video game companies leaving E3. The media swatted for doing their job trying to cover your trash fire. What's next? Corruption and controversy in ESA?
Well, yeah, actually. Remember our long-standing president of ESA, Michael Gallagher? In October 2018, the magazine company Variety published an article about him and his alleged misconduct and controversial behavior during his tenure at the organization. The article was based on interviews with current and former employees of the ESA, as well as other industry insiders. This tell-all sort of story covered how he was consistently verbally abusing employees to the point of bullying, sexually harassing female employees with lewd comments, inappropriate touching, and much more. People who currently or formerly work there described his presence as hellish and traumatic. To add to this toxic work environment, it was reported that he would pit employees against each other for positions of favor or just to keep their jobs, and even fired old talent for cheaper hires he took a shine to. Topping it off, in my opinion, was when he tried to position the ESA to be in complete support of the then-U.S. President Donald Trump, an unpopular move from many board members. Gallagher himself flat out denied that most of this happened, saying that the equivalent of hashtag fake news and claiming the article was unsubstantiated. On the flip side of this, the ESA, notably through Robert Altman and Phil Spencer, actually admitted in the same time frame that they knew this was reported and was already amidst an internal investigation. <laughs> I'm guessing Michael crapped his pants in both fear and anger if there was any pants left after it had caught fire for lying so much. In the end, it was his word against dozens and dozens of others, and with a metaphorical ton of other bad choices added to this, several members of the board and gaming industry called for his resignation or removal from ESA. On October 3rd, 2018, Gallagher announced that he would be stepping down as president of ESA, and then Vice President Stanley Pierre-Louis would take over. It was considered a temporary move for Stanley, but he eventually kept the spot in an official capacity in May 2019 just in time for the E3 data leak to begin flourishing. It was a rough time for the ESA. Around the world, billions of people play video games every day. They come from all walks of life. That's because games transcend age, gender, culture, and society. In the United States, two out of every three Americans play video games. Remarkably, 97% of Americans now believe video games offer benefits to players of all ages. Stanley Pierre-Louis was born in Haiti and moved to the United States with his family when he was five years old. I'm going to slaughter this. Lo 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 Loyola? Loyola Marymount University, because I can't say that. And a law degree from UCLA School of Law. I can say that one just fine. Prior to joining the ESA, Pierre-Louis served as Senior Vice President and General Counsel for Intellectual Property at Viacom CBS where he oversaw the company's global intellectual property portfolio, including trademarks, copyrights, and patents. Before that, he worked as Vice President of Legal Affairs at the Recording Industry Association of America, or RIAA, which I'm not going to ever repeat again, please. I'm begging you. Where he represented the recording industry in a variety of legal and policy matters, including copyright infringement litigation. You may notice that this sounds incredibly familiar. And that's because it hits the same spots on the bingo board as his recently deposed predecessor, Gallagher. Pierre-Louis has also worked as a partner at the law firm of Kilpatrick Tonson and Stockton LLP, and as an associate at the law firm of Irel and Manila LLP, where he focused on intellectual property litigation and counseling. 
With all that in mind, it's abundantly clear why Stanley is kept in the position as big boss. He knew the legal lingo in a way only the best could, and he had lucrative experience protecting media companies' better interest. As we heard in the previous episode, we also know he's well-qualified at a charismatic exchange over legal liability, all the while making it clear that the video game companies he represents are in the right. That being said, a couple legal cases the new and improved DSA tackled were a bit divisive to the public. The first was when the Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, began to cast the ever-watchful eye in loot boxes. If you live under a rock, loot boxes were virtual items that had a tiered list of getting rarer and rarer items in a given game, and usually required real money to purchase. Back before regulations were put in place, this was truly Mr. Burns' mystery box, where you could spend anywhere from a dollar to thousands just to get a legendary character costume or a weapon skin you like. If I was asked if this was gambling from this perspective, I would say absolutely, as instead of paying $20 like you used to buy DLC to get something, you could go neck deep in debt and still not get something you wanted after seeing somebody flaunt it in a game. To make matters worse, some game companies didn't even bother telling you what the odds were of getting more rare items, or even what was in the table of items you could get. You could drop $10 thinking that you had a shot at legendary bikini armor and end up with 10 pairs of common class shoes you didn't know existed. Now, I can't really agree with this sentiment, but the ESA filed comments with the Federal Trade Commission in response to concerns about loot boxes and video games. The comments emphasized that loot boxes are not in fact a form of gambling and should not be subject to regulation as such. The ESA argued that loot boxes are a legitimate game mechanic <laughs> what? that provided players with randomized rewards and, and are not associated with real-world monetary value. They had already tackled the case against the entire state of Missouri that had imposed restrictions on loot boxes saying that this was unconstitutional. I don't think that case has even been resolved yet. The FTC didn't buy this logic for a second, however, and realized how likely children were flat out using their parents' credit card and taking wild chances at these loot boxes, blissfully unaware about how much money they are spending for the sparkling boxes that are being opened. In the end, the FTC strong-armed companies abusing this practice to get a hard grip on what they were offering, and advised parents to guard their wallets lest they get entrapped in a legal battle with Epic and Fortnite, another report testing in the future. So I said there were two legal doodads. And while there are in fact several going on in this time period, the second interesting one was against White Cat Media, a company that hosts a series of websites that offer cheats and hacking programs for games such as Fortnite, Call of Duty, and Overwatch. Remember when I said the ESA goes for blood on online modding? Say hello to Stanley's little friend, the court gavel. While the case is still ongoing, the ESA is hoping to finally dismantle websites like White Cat Media that completely violate the DMCA and the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. In the meantime, ESA has been supporting several different initiatives to combat this issue, including developing anti-cheat software and harsher penalties for those caught. As one could say, there's more than one way to skin a white cat. I'll see myself out. And 
and I'm back after taking a small break. Thank you. I'm sure you missed me. But not as much as you missed E3 because howdy doody, was it in for a surprise in 2020. During the winter of 2019, the ESA had big and what many described as terrifying ideas in store. Not only were they going to keep using the LA Convention Center for at least one more year, they were going to add 10,000 more tickets to the public. Remember when I said the place was packed to the wazoo with almost 70,000 people in 2019? Now add another town's worth of people to the mix. What were they thinking? Well, they thought the solution to the guaranteed god-awful lines was the infamous word they coined as cutainment. I, can't, I gotta say this word again with a bit of thickness. Cutainment. Entertainment and cues where they had lined TVs to display ads, game trailers, and other bits of media as they stood for hours to play one game. There was also talk about a FastPass-like system where you could pay even more money to cut the line and play before the sweaty peasants could, like you were hot stuff with the VIP bracelet of a theme park. They also wanted to lure every influencer, and yes, I mean TikTokers, Instagram posers, YouTube short makers, you get it, and welcomed them in as a special breed of gamers that could get appointment-only presentation in new games. So here's you, the normie who spent $250 to get to the event. Congratulations! The line to the game you wanted to try for 5 minutes has a 4-hour queue. Ooh. You sit there sweating and cramped as the rich Chad sneers at you for existing, and they scoot in front of you for a faster chance to play the same game, having already enjoyed 5 games in a similar fashion. Jennifer Glitterjeans, a made-up Instagram media star with 300,000 followers and counting, posted about how she likes Fortnite and got an exclusive hour-long demo of Apex Legends, which is another game announced you won't be able to play here. You're surrounded by TVs telling you to pre-order every game under the sun for free keychains and exclusive armor for the game's mascot, woohoo, and now you've gotten the E3 experience of being treated like second class. You can see why Jeff Keighley, one of the biggest names in the gaming media and host of the Game Awards, said no thanks. <laughs> Absolutely not. To go into this for the first time in 25 years. On the plus side, they thought about adding a fourth day for industry media to try games before they escaped the nightmare that was E3 2020. But the reality was even more depressing. see, it would have been summer of 2020 for this hellscape E3 to exist, but a viral epidemic that murdered both hundreds of thousands and any chance of a large-scale event happening was on the horizon, and the coronavirus issued the kiss of death to E3 as we knew it. They initially tried to downplay the likelihood of postponing the show, but eventually they had to succumb that a physical appearance was just not possible and even a virtual equivalent was untenable thanks to the pandemic. For the first time in 25 years, E3 was cancelled. With COVID in full swing at this point, ESA's presence has dwindled significantly. Its revenue greatly reduced from the lack of E3 funds and the gaming industry struggling to recover. From the legal side, there's been a huge slowdown in cases that I can find beyond the concurrent lawsuits managed or advised by the ESA with state laws that they argue violate video games' free speech. The usual stuff, you know? Their website shows a lot of initiatives that they've typed out in support of promoting diversity. 
and inclusion of the gaming industry, including the ESA Foundation, which provides scholarships, grants, and mentorships to women, people of color, and LBGTQ plus individuals as a means to help them explore the video game business. The ESA has also partnered with the International Game Developers Association, IGDA, to conduct surveys and research on diversity in the industry, and to develop resources and best practices for game developers to promote diversity and inclusion in their games. If I may be honest though, it feels like most of this is corporate bulletin talk meant to help show that they're still relevant. Far be it for me to assume or judge the assumption that they're no longer the centerfold of the video game world. Their E3 went from crack to non-existent after years of complaints and misuse. They never fully addressed the data scandal that burnt thousands of bridges of media and public attendees alike, and several members of their own board only partially used resources to help promote their own upcoming projects. E3 in 2021, renamed the Electronic Entertainment Experience, was aptly called so because it was entirely online. It was a glorified ad block for game companies to lump some announcements together with nothing but some minor buzz to show for it. When 2022 came around, January immediately saw the cancellation of the physical portion of the expo as another variant had just slammed California again. And internal conflicts were likely clashing in the idea on what kind of online show E3 had in store. By March of 2022, however, the ESA said everything was shut down for that year, and E3 unceremoniously took another nosedive into the grave pit. As we look at E3 for 2023, the ESA has claimed that E3 2023 will finally be back and in person once more, with a three day event for the industry, and then two days on a separate location for the public. By January, both Nintendo, Sony, and Microsoft had announced that they had zero interest in E3. Ubisoft said they were going to do it, and then they changed their mind and said nah. And, as of this recording, the ESA has announced that E3 2023 was cancelled due to lack of interest. It just feels sad. Today, the ESA is neck deep in an identity crisis. They're struggling to maintain E3 as a pillar to the foundation of gaming news as the internet plays host to individual game companies carving their own time slots for announcements. Leading a large portion of responsibility, they initially had a large amount of the responsibility on ReadPop, who manages conventions such as PAX, New York Comic Con, and Star Wars Celebration, hoping that there was going to be a Hail Mary move. But as we know already, that's just not going to happen. Unfortunately, we don't know what the future of E3 is now. Only time will tell, and that's if it passes the legal team at ESA. In the end, I want to stress the importance of ESA in the past 20-something years in the legal world for gaming. Without that faithful grouping at the DC conference in the 90s, the government would have stepped in and dramatically altered the future of games, perhaps similar to Australia's strict handling of the matter. Whereas our Aussies had to deal with mature games being the topic of heated debate for decades, the US was able to comfortably loot dying prostitutes on the streets of San Andreas and slay hundreds of demons on the trek through hell. The social standing of ESA, however, has always been lackluster and occasionally garnished with disdain. You never knew what side of the coin the organization was going to land on as the years went on, but if there's one thing we can be certain of, 
It's that the internet will unleash justice and rear its ugly head when the need comes. Speaking of the internet, the ESA actually has a YouTube channel, and it's ironically representative of the company now. Currently at 159 videos, you can see how E3 videos between 2014 and 2017 did remarkably well with trailers and other teases. But as time went on and they tried a more advisory and impactful role, viewership dropped exponentially. Their last video was over a year ago, and the average view per video in the last six years barely surpassed 200 people. Not 200,000, 200. Their most recent video, a webinar advocating for a safe online play, currently sits at 100 views. 101 if you got me giving it, you know, a morose look. 100 people in the entire world took a look at the last media attempt the ESA has tried to be a public figure. I think that sums up their repetition rather neatly. That's going to do it for this episode as we recap the beginnings of the Entertainment Software Association, their creation of the ESRB and E3, the great strides and lumps they took, and more. I appreciate all of you that waited for me to get this done. Seriously, I love you so much. Oh. Sources for this episode include the Entertainment Software Association's website, which is desa.com, Several legal case documents gathered by ChatGPT and corroborated by Wired, GameSpot, IGN, and Polygon, and further supported by articles in the Wayback Machine on SupremeCourt.gov forward slash opinions. Digital Spy for their article detailing SOPA and PIPA in regards to the ESA. Critical thanks is given to both YouTuber Alpha Omega Sin and Colin Moriarty's Last Stand Media for their solid videos in covering the early history of ESA and the controversies that slowly arose from them. Next, I would like to give credit once more to the gaming media outlets. Let me take a deep breath. <gasps> GameSpot, IGN, Wired, Engadget, GamePro, Giant Bomb, Polygon, Destructroid, GameIndustry.biz, Gamasutra, and many more for their fringe articles detailing personal experiences and information regarding E3 over the course of decades. Huge thanks to Variety for information regarding the controversy surrounding Michael Gallagher and a bloody course Wikipedia. Intro and outro music is Nightshade by Adhesive Wombat. Love their music. Thank you all for another E3-tastic episode as we listen to a bunch of corporal suits say how cool it is to have free speech and please give them money. I hope to catch you in the next episode, and don't forget the mod your classics. See y'all later!